Before we get started, just a heads up that this episode includes reporting on racist extremists. And as you'll hear, one of the subjects in the story reportedly used bigoted and offensive slurs. So this episode may not be appropriate for everyone. Okay, on to the show. Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers, and this is Embedded from NPR. Back in February, FBI agents in Alaska got a tip that a user on this website called iFunny was posting memes, joking about mass shootings and the targeting of Planned Parenthood. And so FBI agents started monitoring the site, and they found this user who went by the name Army of Christ. All of this is according to court documents. And then, about a month later, Army of Christ got a big boost in followers. 4,400 of them. He said that if he got up to 5,000, he would post a video showing how to modify an AR-15 with a coat hanger to make it fully automatic. In one chat with another user about the 1993 siege in Waco, Texas, he wrote, In conclusion, shoot every federal agent on site. So the FBI subpoenaed Google because he had a Gmail account and found that Army of Christ lived in a town called Boardman, Ohio, a suburb of Youngstown. The feds in Ohio took the case and found more posts, like a picture of a man firing machine guns with the caption, me walking into the nearest Planned Parenthood, a picture of an explosion with me thanking God they put a gay bar next to a Planned Parenthood, a post about wanting to buy an AR-15, and this post. Hell, the Oklahoma City bombing shows that armed resistance is a viable method of political change. There is no legal solution. And then, after they saw all these posts, the El Paso shooting happened. There are reports of an active shooter near a mall. The biggest white supremacist attack in 50 years. Witnesses say the gunman shot randomly and repeatedly. Right after that. Another gunman opened fire in the U.S. city of Dayton. A mass shooting in Dayton, Ohio. Nine people dead and dozens more injured when a gunman... The Ohio feds who were watching Army of Christ contacted local authorities... And according to the police report, the local prosecutor told a police officer, quote, in light of the recent mass shootings in the United States, we could not wait to act on this information. And a warrant was issued for Army of Christ's arrest. His arrest was one of those 40 arrests that we talked about in our last episode that news organizations reported came after the shootings in El Paso and Dayton. All of those arrested were suspected of planning some kind of violence, and at least a dozen of them are known to have extremist views. Extremism, according to the Anti-Defamation League, means ideas that are outside the mainstream, held by people who seek radical changes in the nature of government, religion, or society. Turns out Army of Christ was an 18-year-old named Justin Olson. He had just graduated high school It was August, and police found him at his father's house, where they also found 26 guns and more than 10,000 rounds of ammunition. Justin Olson was arrested after he wrote online he would, quote, shoot every federal agent in sight. Olson made online posts praising the Oklahoma City bombing, mass shootings, and attacks on Planned Parenthood. Officials say Olson was under investigation since February, but they decided to act now because of the recent mass shootings. Justin Olson is white. In school pictures, he has a slight build and blonde hair. He was on the quiz bowl in the orchestra, played tennis. 
Court records show he had a partial ROTC scholarship for college. His friends and his mother say he had extremist views, but they say they didn't know how extreme his views were. So we went to Ohio to see how people who knew Justin look back on this arrest. Some told us he said extremist and sometimes violent things at school. We know extremist speech and activity is on the rise in recent years, and so are extremist attacks. So how do you tell if teenagers saying extremist things will actually turn into violence? And how can adults intervene before they do? That's our show today. After this break. Support for NPR and the following message come from Third Love. Co-founder and CEO Heidi Zack believed that traditional bra sizes weren't working for many women, and she wanted to do something about it. One of the things we found in the early days of Third Love was that women were in between traditional cup sizes, and 25% of Third Love customers are buying half cup sizes. To find your perfect fit and get 15% off your first order, go to thirdlove.com embedded. Support also comes from Rothy's. Rothy's are the stylish, comfortable, and sustainable flats seamlessly crafted from repurposed plastic bottles. Available in a range of colors, patterns, and styles like flats, loafers, and sneakers. Fully machine washable and no break-in period. Discover why BuzzFeed called them their forever shoes. Rothy's always offers free shipping and free returns and exchanges. Go to rothys.com slash embedded to find out more. When a whale dies in the ocean and its body falls down to the seabed, something amazing happens. When they hit that deep sea floor, it's like Thanksgiving. Whale Falls, the science of a deep sea feast. This week on Shortwave, the daily science podcast from NPR. Okay, we are back. After Justin Olson was arrested, he was charged with threatening to assault a federal law enforcement officer. And he appeared in federal court. Here's what happened. An FBI agent testified that when Justin was asked about his violent posts, he said they were a joke. The federal prosecutor said, quote, nothing about this is funny. And the fact that the defendant thinks it's funny is disconcerting. Justin's father, Eric Olson, testified that the guns and ammunition police found were his, not his son's, and that he kept most of them in a safe. The father said he's a competitive shooter, that a binder authorities found full of information about school shootings was his. He said he believes teachers should be armed in schools and that he taught Justin about guns and took him to a shooting range. He said he did not think Justin was dangerous. Justin Olson's mother, Melanie Olson, testified that Justin had been irritable and rude to her in the months before the arrest, that she knew he was against abortion, and she was concerned his, quote, antisocial views would not work well for him in the world. She said she is a mental health counselor, and she didn't think he needed counseling. The government later presented more evidence to the court, more posts they had found by Justin, including a shopping list of bomb-making materials and a detailed drawing of how to modify an AR-15. The prosecutor told the judge the 26 guns found in his father's house showed Justin had, quote, the ability and readiness to act on his beliefs. 
Justin's lawyer told the judge that Justin had no specific plan to commit violence. We tried to contact Justin through his lawyer, but the lawyer did not respond to several calls and emails. The prosecutor and Justin's mother and father also declined to comment. But like I said, we did go to Ohio to talk to other people who knew Justin. Reporter Jasmine Garst-Garcia has that part of the story. Jack Pendleton used to be friends with Justin. After Justin got arrested, Jack says he was surprised about the violent stuff he'd been posting online. Jack thinks iFunny, that website where Justin was posting violent memes, is lame. Moreover, he couldn't believe Justin was posting this stuff at all while sitting there with his friends and classmates. He sat next to me at lunch doing these iFunny things. So, like, I don't know if some of this stuff got posted while he was sitting next to me or, like, in my house and stuff, you know? I first met Jack online. His Facebook profile picture is of him, Justin, and another kid dressed up for junior prom. Jack had known Justin since the seventh grade, and he'd always been pretty irritated by Justin's extreme conservative political rants, his offensive humor. But one day, senior year, Justin just took it too far. It was in an AP class called Human Geography about different world cultures. Students had to do a presentation about religion, Some took the easy, obvious choice, Christianity. Jack chose Shintoism. Justin chose Islam. Like opening slide, it was black with white font. It was centered in the middle, and it said Islam. And then under it, a 6,000-year death cult. A 6,000-year death cult, a phrase used by internet conspiracy theorists. And then Justin put up a slide that was a caricature of the Prophet Muhammad, dark-skinned, drawn as a scrawny, dejected-looking loser, and Jesus Christ, drawn as a white jock with a strong chin and a big, bulging crotch. Jack showed us the meme. Virgin Muhammad versus Chad Jesus. Again, we tried contacting Justin through his lawyer but did not get a response. We should say four students in the class confirmed these details. No bueno, no good. And again, like, Justin is laughing while doing this. So it's just like, he thinks this is funny. And like, he thinks it's funny to make all of us like squirm while watching this. Jack did not think it was funny. I got mad when he put up the digipation of Muhammad. I was like, you can't do that. Like, you cannot. Like, I was like, that crosses the line. Like, for real, for real, like, that's just bad. You know? Nobody in the class laughed. Like, you've gone like way too far. I was covering my mouth because it was just, it, it was, it was disgusting. That's Sophia McGee. She'd also known Justin since middle school. They were on the Envirothon team together. It's an environmental knowledge competition. Even though they were teammates, they argued over his misogynist and homophobic views. That presentation in Human Geo class, though, Sophia says that shocked her. I think the teacher should have stopped him. I think that that should not have been allowed to have been presented to a class. I, I like this teacher, um, but I, I feel like the teacher just let it go. The teacher just sat there. We reached out to the human geo teacher, Kyle Sheehan. He's now the assistant principal. He declined to talk to us. In an email, the school's communication coordinator did not say whether the teacher responded to Justin's presentation outside of class. She also declined our request to interview other school administrators. 
She did write this about the class, quote, At no point did any student ever report any racist or discriminatory jokes to the teacher or the administration. No student alerted staff or administration that they were ever uncomfortable. And, quote, our teachers make every effort to allow open dialogue while still reminding students to be respectful and tolerant. We'll talk more about how the school responded later in the show. Several students who knew Justin from high school told us how, over the years, Justin's rhetoric became much more inflammatory and at times had an air of violence. Like saying he wanted a white ethnostate or to start a war against people who weren't Christian. He kept saying he wanted to like bring back the Crusades and, you know, if they were happening today, he'd like go to war against the infidels or whatever. That's Pranav Padmanavan. He was Justin's captain on the Quiz Bowl team. At lunch, they'd sit together. Pranav remembers Justin had this Sicilian cross on his backpack, a symbol of the Crusades, which he says Justin was obsessed with. And even though Pranav was openly gay, Justin was homophobic and would say gay people are degenerates. Pranav says he didn't take it as seriously as he now feels like he should have, but he and others did push back. Like this one time at the lunch table. He was talking about uh, joining the military because he wanted to, quote, kill as many goat fuckers as I can. He meant Muslims. That's according to several students we talked to. I think that was one where we were like, Justin, you can't say that. Or the time the team was heading to a state competition and they drove past a mosque. And I remember he said something Islamophobic and then he said something to the effect of, uh, oh, you know, I hope I'm killed in a radical Islamic attack so I can be a martyr to the cause. And then we were all just like shocked. And I, I told him, I was like, you sound like a terrorist right now. Pranav said these things to Justin, but he didn't take it up with teachers or administrators. That's something he says he regrets now. After Justin's arrest, when the screenshots of his online activity started trickling out, his classmates were all pretty shocked to see pictures of him in jail. Because if you look up Google Images, the first like 10 or 15 pictures are mug shots and a picture of him walking out of the courtroom. But then you scroll down and there are pictures of us from Envirothon, the whole team. And there's a picture of him in orchestra with his electric bass and he's smiling and... We all have our arms around each other and the coach is there and the sun is shining and we're all happy. And it just, it doesn't, it doesn't, the pieces don't fit together. I mean, when you think about it now, do you think he was dangerous? I think he was, yeah. I think especially with all the uh, weaponry and everything he had and, and how easy it is. It's in this country, it's just too easy for that to happen. If someone wanted that to happen, they could easily do it. Justin Olson's lawyer recently asked for him to be released to his mother's custody, where she would keep him off the Internet and monitor his moves. That request was denied on the grounds there is serious risk he would, quote, endanger the safety of another person or the community. He's still in jail. After the break, we'll come back to Justin Olson's case and talk more about what Pranav and Sophia did after his arrest and more about what the school did. But first, we're going to talk about when extremism at school does lead to violence and what other schools are doing to try and stop it. 
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Best Fiends, a casual mobile puzzle game with tons of cute characters to collect. There are thousands of fun puzzles, and the game updates monthly, so there are always new levels and challenges to master. Play anywhere and anytime with no internet required, perfect for traveling and long subway commutes. Collect different characters and use them strategically for each different level. Download this five-star rated puzzle game free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best fiends. Can we affect the rise and fall of the economy? Although things may look good for now, many Wall Street analysts are concerned about the warning signs ahead. Just by the way we talk about it. The bond markets once again flashing that ominous recession. How stories and psychology affect our economic fate. This week on Hidden Brain from NPR. All right, we are back. Derek Weimer taught high school in Kentucky, in a suburb just outside of Cincinnati, Ohio. And a few years ago, he was teaching a world history class. One of his students started talking about how much he liked Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. He believed that, you know, the white race was the most dominant, most powerful race. Um, He didn't like the fact of foreigners and you know, Hispanics, Mexicans coming into the country felt that, you know, blacks and other minorities were inferior. So Derek thought the best thing to do was teach his way out of it. He figured, it's a free country. The student can believe what he wants. I'll just try to change his mind with facts. So he told the story of his great uncle who fought in World War II and saw how the Nazis used children to fight. He talked about what Allied soldiers found when they liberated the Nazi death camps. But the student didn't change his mind. And it's not that the student didn't believe the Holocaust happened. No, oh no, no, no. He didn't argue that it didn't happen. He would argue why it was a valid strategy or tactic. He thought the Holocaust was justified. So Derek asked the student where he was learning this stuff. And the student said he read it on white nationalist websites, like Stormfront. I remember saying, that's just garbage. That's that's Nazi garbage. I'm like, you you think they don't have an objective or a goal in reporting these quote-unquote facts? I approached it as a teacher would approach it. My weapon was logic. My weapon was compassion. My weapon was morality, right and wrong. The student eventually graduated. And one day, Derek got a message on Facebook from another former student. He was like, hey, he was like, follow this link, and you won't believe who's involved. And sure enough, I mean, you know, there it was. Let's get right to our breaking news out of Charlottesville, Virginia. White nationalists joined by the KKK, neo-Nazis, and armed militia demonstrated in the street. At least one person is dead, more than two dozen others hurt after a car slammed into a group of demonstrators. James Alex Field Jr. of Ohio was charged with second-degree murder along with several other crimes. I was shocked, and I got kind of a sick feeling to my stomach. James Fields was Derek's former student, the neo-Nazi. The woman he killed was Heather Heyer. 32-year-old Heather Heyer of Charlottesville died in the crash. Heather Heyer was there to protest racism and hate. Derek says whenever he sees Heather Heyer's mother on the news, he feels bad. Sometimes I feel guilty, like what could I have done differently to keep her from having lost her daughter? And the way he answers that question now is if he could go back, 
he would tell other people at the school what James was saying. Now I, you know, I would definitely, I'd have been more aggressive in, in making sure it was properly reported. You know, I'd report it to the administration, I'd report it to the guidance counselors, and I would also mention it to the school resource officer. It's not like there's a national guideline for teachers and schools on what to do when a student says extremist things. Organizations like the Anti-Defamation League do reach out to schools when extremist incidents go viral, like a recent prom proposal by a white student that spelled out the N-word, or white students standing around a swastika made of red solo cups and doing the Nazi salute. And the ADL reaches out, says Megan Nevels, the group's assistant education director in Los Angeles, because these incidents are happening a lot more often. I can say without a doubt that those incidents have increased in the last three, four years. We track incidents just outside of schools, just in general, and FBI numbers, LAPD numbers, state numbers, ADL numbers, they've all increased. I mean, every year they increase over the last three, four years. When the ADL does go into a school, they say one of the main challenges is to convince teachers like Derek that even with students who don't seem like they'll resort to violence, violence is possible. So the ADL uses this tool called the Pyramid of Hate. The idea is at the bottom of the triangle, there are these biased attitudes that a lot of people have, stereotyping, fear of difference. And as you go up the pyramid, you see where this bias can lead. Like, not everybody will go this direction, thus the pyramid, which gets smaller and smaller. But first, it's stuff like name-calling, bullying, slurs. Then discrimination, like not giving someone a job because of who they are. And then comes violence. Vandalism, arson, assault, rape, murder, terrorism. And at the top of the pyramid is genocide. Like, if left unchecked, these ideas can be a direct line to the most extreme violence. For many people in this country, this has been the reality for decades, even centuries. For me, it's the first time I'd ever seen it so plainly. We talked to another teacher who has been dealing with extremism in her school for years. She was frustrated that there's not a lot of advice out there for how to respond in the moment. So she decided to do something about it. My name is Nora Flanagan. I am an English teacher in the Chicago Public Schools. One day, several years back, Nora saw a student with a patch on his jacket that she recognized as a logo for a movement called White Pride Worldwide. It's basically a square cross inside a circle. And the student was wearing black combat boots with white laces, something that could be nothing, but given the patch, could also be a reference to white nationalism. You know, I stopped him and struck up a conversation and asked him, you know, what was, what was going on with his new look. And he seemed really excited that I had asked. He seemed almost like he had been waiting for someone to ask him. And he sprung back with, there's nothing wrong with pride in being white. And what did you say? I don't remember exactly what I said, but I remember at the time feeling really stressed and scrambled to respond in a way that kept him engaged in conversation, didn't shut it down. But I also wanted to make clear to him that I knew what that patch meant. 
She didn't want to come down too hard on him, she says, because she knows that can drive people further into these movements. Because it reinforces the white nationalist narrative that white people are oppressed. Over the years, white nationalist groups have provided instructions for young people to bring their ideology into school. They have given them lists of suggestions, conversation starters. I had to run on the assumption that this student was ready for anything I might say and might even be looking to escalate the conversation. So my goal was to stay calm because overreacting is just as counterproductive as underreacting. It's a very fine balance. But, and but somehow you did express some concern. I expressed concern. I expressed that I recognized the symbol and that it had definitely caught my attention and that we probably had some things to talk about. And then she went to the discipline office of the school. She says the white dean she reported it to seemed confused and unfamiliar with the issue. Especially in the early 2000s, if a kid didn't have a giant swastika on his back, then I needed to do some convincing. The dean asked for more information, so Nora went online and found the ADL's glossary of hate symbols. I literally did print out that section of the visual symbols dictionary and brought it to them with the symbols circled. She went back to administrators and said, we need to do something now. The administration finally concluded that it was worth searching his locker, where they found a stack of printed recruitment flyers for the National Alliance, which at the time was still a prominent hate group in this country. And they also found sketches in his notebooks of people hanging from trees. Black people, specifically. So here was a student who was eager to make clear that he was engaging with this ideology and with these groups, and was literally sketching out fantasies of lynching people. And then my administration knew that this was serious. She says to this day, she doesn't know if the student would have actually committed violence. But what they found in that locker made it feel very possible. I didn't feel vindicated when we found sketches of African-Americans hanging from trees in this kid's notebook. I felt terrified. I felt heartbroken that a kid was this far down a really hateful path. But I also felt immensely relieved that we knew what we knew before anything terrible had happened. The school connected the student with counseling and talked to his parents. The next year, he took Nora's non-Western lit class. And I can say I stayed in touch with that student years after he graduated, and he disengaged from the white nationalist movement and, I mean, went on to be okay. Uh, and I think that part of the reason that he turned out all right was that we didn't underreact, we didn't overreact, and we remembered that as terrifying as the situation felt, we did still have, you know, a student, a, a human child at the center of it. Nora realized she wasn't the only teacher dealing with this stuff, especially in recent years. She would talk to her friends, who were also teachers, and at one point they were like, where's the handbook for how to deal with this stuff? These incidents were happening at my own school, at friends' and, and former colleagues' schools, but nobody had a set way to 
respond. Everyone was reinventing the wheel or trying to reinvent the wheel every time something happened, and things were happening more and more. So she and two other teachers decided to write the handbook. It's actually called The Toolkit for Confronting White Nationalism in Schools, and it's a 50-page guide with specific examples of extremist incidents and how to respond to them. Nora and her co-authors have presented this toolkit at dozens of conferences and at least 10 schools, and the document has been distributed to thousands of people. The advice includes telling students to document as much of an incident as they can and to report incidents to more than one adult, and telling schools to offer a private way for students and staff to report incidents and to have a clear response that hate is not okay in school. Nora says the hardest thing is how reluctant schools and parents are to take these incidents seriously. So in the toolkit, they have a list of ways people try to deny that anything is wrong and how to respond. Like, this is just political correctness, or racism is over, or what about free speech? All ideologies are not equal. They do not deserve equal airtime, and they do not deserve equal protection. I believe in free speech. I love free speech. However, speech that threatens violence, speech that advocates expulsion or extermination of groups of people is not protected in our school communities because it endangers our school communities. Or the student was just kidding. Teachers and administrators say things like, it was just a joke, kids will be kids, uh, that's not what that means, I'm sure that wasn't meant to be hurtful. Um, that is a common defense, and I have an awesome sense of humor, and those aren't jokes. So you don't get to hide behind hateful ideology by saying JK at the end. LOL. Genocide. No. Or there's this very common response from schools. This isn't who we are. When a swastika gets carved into the arm of a, of a chair in the library, we'll replace the chair and insist, this isn't who we are. Except that it happened. So there it was. Um, and that's a well-intentioned response. This isn't who we are. Our community is not about this. Our school stands for tolerance and diversity. But if the incidents keep happening... Apparently, that is not a vaccine against hateful ideology. And so at some point, you need to say more. Okay, so that's how other schools are confronting extremism. And now we're going to go back to Justin Olson's school in Boardman, Ohio. Here's reporter Jasmine Garst-Garcia again. In the days after Justin Olson was arrested, Pranav Padmanavan, his former team captain, says he just couldn't stop thinking about what had happened. Not only the arrest itself, but the years leading up to it. I kind of went back and thought about, like, what was the pathway? Like, how did he get here? And then I just kind of thought, like, what were we thinking at that time? And why didn't anyone say anything? He talked to his parents about it. And he says his parents kind of hinted that Pranav was in college now. Why bother? But Pranav says it ate away at him. So he decided to write a letter to the administrators at his high school. Boardman High School principal Cindy Fernback and Superintendent of Schools Timothy Saxton. And here is some of what he wrote. 
Dear Mr. Saxton and Mrs. Fernback, I've been thinking a lot recently about what happened with Justin Olson, and I'm really concerned with what seems to be a pattern that's becoming more common throughout the nation and here at home. I spent a lot of time with Justin in various school activities, and in hindsight, there were a lot of warning signs that seemed minor at the time but could have helped prevent this, including him making offensive comments and troubling memes. He goes on in another paragraph, I've also been thinking about how the school district can help prevent this. And after talking to other former students and reading up on radicalization, I strongly believe schools should take the lead on this issue. Myself and many other students I've talked with, we are worried that this story is repeating itself too often and is hitting too close to home. And more students like Justin might fall through the cracks and cause real damage. Principal Fernback wrote back thanking Pranav for the letter. She said she too had been reflecting. She said the school safety officer, who's also a cop, would explore how to deal with potential threats in the future and attend an FBI training on how to recognize these threats. And she said she was open to the idea of introducing the term radicalization in the school. She also stressed the importance of making sure students tell an adult when they see something that bothers them. Like we said, we asked for an interview with Fernback and others at the school. They declined. But in the email, the communications coordinator said the school safety officer did complete the FBI training. And she responded to our questions about Justin's presentation about Islam and why no action was taken by the teacher in the classroom that day. Kelly read part of the school's response to Pranav and to Sophia McGee, who, remember, was in that class. Many class discussions covered controversial topics, and both ends of the political spectrum were represented. There were students who were as far left in their political and social views as one can be, labeled by more moderate students as socialists. Conversely, there were students as far right as one can be, those who used the talking points of the far right, religious conservative affiliation. Oh, boy. I don't think that a valid political stance is wanting to hurt people or saying that people are less than you because of who they are or what they believe. I, I think it's frankly responsible equating what, what they declare to be the far left to what Justin's views were. And I think this is the kind of thing that validates people like Justin. I also ran the school's response by Megan Nevels of the ADL and Nora Flanagan, who wrote the toolkit on confronting white nationalism in schools. And they told me they were frustrated, but not surprised. I think a lot of folks get scared to address things because they're, quote, political. And I don't think that illustrating the through line of racism and white supremacy in our country's history is political. It is an issue of life or death. Nora Flanagan says every kid in that room who heard Justin Olson say what he said about Muslims and watched while an adult reportedly did not tell him to stop was basically being told that this dangerous and potentially violent idea was just fine. I'm I'm not here to Monday morning quarterback a situation in a class that I wasn't sitting in. But there have to be those moments in class where teachers are willing to plant their feet and say, this is not okay. Not okay at all. Sophia McGee says Justin's arrest has changed her. She's in college now, and she says these days, if someone says something extreme and she's in the room, she'll say something. 
It's that thing these teachers and trainers are working so hard to help students learn how to do. Something students might not necessarily know how to do on their own. I definitely think that in the future, I would be more aware that there was a need for me to act. And I, I would act. I just don't think I realized that I needed to act because this could have been bad. This, this could have been another, this could have been another mass shooting. Maybe not, maybe not this summer, but eventually there could have been the possibility of many more people losing their lives or being injured. Authorities say the maximum sentence Justin Olson could get is 15 years in prison. The next thing to happen in his case is a pretrial hearing in January 2020. get a copy of the Confronting White Nationalism in Schools Toolkit, go to westernstatescenter.org and request a free PDF version. This story was reported by Jasmine Garst-Garcia and me. It was produced by Tom Dreisbach with help from Lisa Pollock. It was edited by Neil Carruth, Lisa Pollock, Chris Turpin, and Keith Woods. Big thanks to NPR's Hannah Alam, Art Gibson from the University of Dayton, Mary McCord from Georgetown University, Mark Pitcavage, Joanna Mendelson, and Annie Ortega from the ADL. Jennifer and James Hannon, and the other students from Boardman High School who talked to us for this story. We got legal help from Steven Zansberg. Our theme song is by Colin Wamsgans, and other music in this episode is from Blue Dot Sessions and Ramtin Arablui. Subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Hit us up on Twitter at NPR Embedded. Thanks for listening to Embedded from NPR.